There are many things you could be doing on a Monday night, but here you are worshiping your God and singing praise to Him as we've been led so capably throughout this meeting, and also encourage one another. I'm impressed by the churches in this area and the fellowship that you all have with one another and the strength and soundness of so many congregations within a short space of each other, and that's always a big boost to the congregations who respect God's Word and want to live by it and do what it says. And so I'm grateful to be among you here tonight and to be a part of this meeting effort. I am not a real estate agent, but I do want to show you a couple of houses as we get started tonight. They're not in the classified section of your local newspaper. They were listed by our Lord in Matthew chapter 7 near the end of the Sermon on the Mount. And I'd like to invite your attention to... House number one, this is the one Jesus described in Matthew 7 and verse 24 when he said this, Therefore, whosoever heareth these sayings of mine and doeth them, I will show you to whom he is like, or I will liken him unto a wise man which built his house upon a rock. And the rain descended, the floods came, the winds blew, beat upon that house, it fell not. Why? For it was founded upon a rock. And everyone that heareth these sayings of mine and doeth them not shall be likened unto a man which built his house upon the sand. The rain descended, the floods came, the winds blew and beat upon that house, and it fell, and great was the fall of it. Now, I don't have to ask you which house you'd rather reside in When the storms are coming, I know the answer to that question, it would be the house built upon the rock. And do you know that our Lord himself also talked about a house that would be built upon a solid foundation? And it's a privilege to think about it with you here tonight. One of the joys of my life was to go in the year 2010 and 11 on my very first Bible lands trip to these locations. Brother Tony was our leader And I've cherished very much, and others in this room were on that very same trip. I've cherished very much those associations. Jeff Archie, a gospel preacher, was with us on that trip. He handed me his Bible at Caesarea Philippi, and he said, Beige, you might never be here again. You ought to go down and sit on that rock there and read this very text from Matthew 16. And so that is what I was doing when this picture was snapped I wasn't posing for the picture, but I was happy to receive it, to have a record of remembering and reading this text. In Matthew chapter 16, Jesus had come into the region of Caesarea Philippi, and he wanted to know, whom do men say that I, the Son of Man, am? And they gave various responses. Some say you're John the Baptizer, others say you're Elijah or Jeremiah or one of the prophets. Then he asked this, but whom say ye that I am? And Simon Peter answered, and this time he said something really, really well. Thou art the Christ, the Son of the living God. Notice the singularity and specificity of that statement. The Christ, the Son of the living God. And Jesus pronounced a blessing upon him and said, You're blessed, Simon Barjona. Flesh and blood has not revealed this unto thee. But my Father which is in heaven, and then this, 
I say also unto thee that thou art Peter, and upon this rock I will build my church, and the gates of hell or Hades shall not prevail against it, and I will give unto thee the keys of the kingdom of heaven. And whatsoever thou shalt bind on earth shall be bound in heaven, and whatsoever thou shalt loose on earth shall have already been loosed in heaven is the tense of the original language there. And so what a momentous occasion this is. Jesus could have asked this same question anywhere else during his public ministry or in private with the apostles by his side. Why ask the question here at Caesarea Philippi? As you get a broader view of Caesarea Philippi, you remember that it has this rocky ledge and all the people in the yellow hats, by the way, that's our group. That's how we found each other and were able to keep up with one another. Notice we're peering into this dark area. And there was a time, and yes, even when Jesus Christ was present on this occasion in Matthew 16, there was a time when Greek sanctuaries or temples would have been built They're no longer present there. As you can see, we're not seeing them. Uh, About two centuries after Jesus was here on this occasion, those things were destroyed by invaders. You see, what men build, men can destroy. But what Jesus builds, man cannot destroy. And Jesus said, upon this rock... I will build my church. Now you can't miss the visual. If you're one of the apostles and you've just heard Jesus say this, you see the thick, solid bedrock and you know that it's able to hold up anything that sits on top of it. It's solid enough to hold that which is upon it. And Jesus Christ said his church would be built upon the fact of his deity. He is the very Son of God. He is the Christ And indeed, he is able to be the foundation for the church. We don't need Peter to be the foundation for the church. He's not strong enough. Jesus is and continues to be so. Now, this is the question, though. Are you absolutely 100% certain that you are in the house built upon the rock? The one that Jesus said he would build. And that raises another question. Did Jesus ever build the house he said here he was going to build? And if so, where and when did he build it? And how did people become a part of that household? And that is the attention that we now give to this. Notice Jesus promised in this text in Matthew 16 to build something. He said, I will build, notice, my church. That possessive is very significant. And I want you to notice the singularity of it. If I say to you tonight, upon this pulpit, I will lay my watch. And after services, you come up and take the watch of your choice. Unless I missed one, you would get up here and say, what do you mean watch of my choice? There's only one. And you would be correct. And just to make sure you don't think I'm serious, I'm going to put my watch back on now. Uh, But you know as well as I do, friends, if you're looking for more than one watch, then you're going to, there's only one. And Jesus said, I will build my church. He only built one. 
And it's the one that I want to be a member of tonight. He said, I'll give thee, Peter, the keys of the kingdom of heaven. I know that some have gotten into this discussion about whether the church and the kingdom are the same thing identically. And I know that the church has a heavenly manifestation and it also has an earthly presence. But I can guarantee you there is an identity between the church and the kingdom because I can promise you this. Jesus is not talking about building one thing in one breath and giving Peter the keys to something entirely different in the next breath. There is an identity between the church and the kingdom, and that is evident here in this passage of Scripture. Now, what do we want to notice on the right-hand side of the screen? There's something else called the church. It's called a house. In fact, Paul would write Timothy, and he said, If I tarry long, I want you to know how you ought to behave thyself. Watch the language in the house of God, which is what, Paul? which is the church of the living God. And so when Jesus said, I will build my church, he could have said, I will build my house because the church is the house of God and that needs to be kept in mind. And you know this plan to build this house dates way back. You can see it in thought and promise in Genesis 3.15 in the seed promise, but you see a specific house mentioned in 2 Samuel chapter 7, David has it in his head that he wants to build a temple for God. And he tells Nathan the prophet about his idea. And at the first part of chapter 7 of 2 Samuel, uh, Nathan essentially says, go for it. You ought to do that. And God gets a hold of Nathan and says, I didn't tell you to tell David to build my house. In fact, he won't be the one to build it. You need to go back to David and tell him something else. And so what does Nathan the prophet tell David the next time he talks to him? He says in verse number 12 of 2 Samuel 7, When thy days be fulfilled, you've lived the last day on earth you're going to live, and you sleep with your fathers, I will set up thy seed after thee. He mentions that this is going to be a descendant of yours who will proceed from your lineage, and I will establish his kingdom... And notice, he'll build me a house. So stop. This descendant of David is going to establish a kingdom and build a house for the name of God, for my name. And I'll establish the throne of his kingdom. How long would that kingdom last? Notice, forever. Solomon cannot be the sum total fulfillment of this passage Because he didn't stay on the throne of David forever. He didn't stay in that kingdom forever. There's someone greater than Solomon that is anticipated here in 2 Samuel chapter 7. And we'll see more about who that is in just a few moments. Now I will tell you I come from the generation of folks who grew up with Polaroid pictures being the highfalutin technology of the day. How many of you young people know what a Polaroid picture is? You say, well I've heard about it. Only in museums and through my parents' stories of old. A Polaroid picture back in the day was pretty neat because you mean I can take a picture, it spits out a snapshot, I don't have to take it and get it developed somewhere, it will develop right before my very eyes. 
And I remember looking at these things in their stages of development. At first it's blurry over here, but hey, it's starting to become more in focus. And the longer I looked at it, the more I saw the complete picture. When you read the Old Testament, it's like looking at a Polaroid that is developing. One section develops over here, and then you look over here. This part is coming into view, and if you keep looking long enough, you'll see the whole picture. And that's exactly what we see with Isaiah combined with 2 Samuel 7. Isaiah predicted centuries before Christ that it would come to pass in the last days, notice the wind. That the mountain of the Lord's house, notice the what? The Lord's house. Shall be established, notice the where, in the top of the mountains. And shall be exalted above the hills. And notice the who. Who's going to be invited into this household in those last days? All nations shall flow unto it. And many people shall go and say, come, let's go to the mountain of the Lord. And notice in red, what does he call it? The house of Of the God of Jacob, will you file that away for just a moment? The house of the God of Jacob, and will teach us of his ways, and will walk in his paths. Out of Zion, there's the where, shall go forth the word of the Lord from Jerusalem. Now we're getting somewhere. David, when you're dead and buried, one of your descendants will come along and build me a house and establish me a kingdom. And he'll be on that throne of that kingdom forever. And it's going to happen that this house of mine, the Lord's house, will be established in the last days in Jerusalem. And yes, all nations are going to be invited to become a part of this household. And so we search, we look, we wait, we wonder, when is that promised descendant of David going to arrive on the scene And then we see it start to come to fulfillment right before our very eyes. It's developing. Luke chapter 1 mentions in verse number 31 to Mary that she was going to conceive and bring forth a son and call his name Jesus. Watch the particulars unfold. He'll be great. He'll be called the son of the highest. The Lord God shall give unto him the throne of his father David. Jesus is a Davidic descendant. He came from the line of David. And notice, what would Jesus, this descendant of David, do? Reign over the house of Jacob. I said, please keep this phrase in mind. Isaiah 2 predicted the house of the God of Jacob. Luke chapter 132 identifies that as indeed, verse 33 in particular, says he shall reign over the house of Jacob for how long? Forever, and of his kingdom, there shall be no end. So house and kingdom are equated because forever and no end are equivalent. House and kingdom are equivalent. What is the house of God? It's the church. And what did Peter uh, get told by Jesus? I'm going to give you the keys to the kingdom of heaven after I build my house, my church. And you see the when and the where now starting to come into more focus. Jesus in Mark 9.1 is preaching in the first century to some folks. And he says, some of them that stand here will not taste of death till they have seen the kingdom of God come. And how would they see it come? With power. Now those folks are all dead and gone. 
And so that kingdom had to have arrived in the first century or Jesus told something untrue. Or you're going to have to take the position that we've got some folks on the planet earth today that were alive when Jesus uttered these words. And they'd make Methuselah look like a tiny little baby boy. No, this is not something I have any trouble with because I know that what Jesus said would happen in Mark 9-1 already happened. I'm not waiting for it to happen. This already happened. Some folks in that life, in that century, saw the kingdom of God arrive with power. Now, on the right-hand side of the screen, Jesus is ascending into heaven, and before he does, he makes this observation. I send the promise of my Father upon you. Now, see if this phrase in blue makes any sense at all. What did Isaiah say? The word of the Lord will go forth from Jerusalem. Where does Jesus want his apostles to tarry? You stay in the city of Jerusalem. Why? Because there's going to be some power dispensed from on high. Wait. The kingdom of God would come with power. Yes. Where? In Jerusalem. When? In the last days. And do we ever see this happen? Did Jesus really ever build that church he said he was going to build? We need to find the right place. Jerusalem. The right period. The last days. And the right prophecy. David is dead and buried. Let's see if we can find it in our Bible. In Acts chapter 1 and verse 8, Luke's account here says that Jesus told his apostles, you'll receive power after the Holy Spirit's come upon you. And then he says, you're going to start to be witnesses unto me, starting where? In blue. In Jerusalem. It's going to start in Jerusalem. Then it will spread to Judea, Samaria, the uttermost parts of the earth. And then Acts 2, the day of Pentecost is now fully arrived, and they... And you connect the they of Acts 2.1 back to the nearest antecedent in Acts 1.26. It's the apostles. The apostles there. They were all with one accord in one place. They. That's the apostles still. There's been no change in the, in the subject of who we're talking about. The apostles were all filled with the Holy Spirit and began to speak with other languages as the Spirit gave them utterance. And as they listen to the gospel being preached, the people are moved by it, as we'll show you in just a moment. Now, who are these people? We notice there were dwelling, the word of the Lord would go forth from Jerusalem, and there were dwelling at Jerusalem. Where are we in Acts chapter 2 and verse 5? We're in Jerusalem. That's where Isaiah predicted the word of the Lord would go forth from. And notice... The right period of time. Isaiah, when did you say this was all going to happen? In the last days. Peter, what's going on here? This is what Joel said would happen in the last days. Isaiah and Joel both predicted something would happen in the last days. And Peter said, you're seeing it happen right here on the day of Pentecost. I went to a debate some years ago in which a preacher in the religious world mockingly said... If you ever want to know if a Bible belongs to a member of one of the churches of Christ, there is an easy test, he said. If you'll just take that Bible and hold it like so and just let it fall open, it'll fall open to Acts 2 every time if they're a member of the church of Christ. That's what he said. 
Mine fell open to Ezekiel 17, but I am a proud member of the Lord's church and not afraid to tell you. And you know what he went on to say? Those folks have a greasy spot in their Bible in Acts 2. Their fingerprints are all over Acts 2 so much that they've got greasy spots all over the pages of Acts 2 in their Bible. Are you ashamed to have some fingerprints on the pages of Acts 2, my friends? Why should I be ashamed of that when all the culmination of biblical prophecy and the fulfillment of the Lord's arrival and the establishment of His kingdom, His church, His house is predicted to take place in Acts 2? And that's exactly what happened because notice the prophecy in 2 Samuel chapter 7, David, when you're dead and buried, one of your descendants is going to build me a house and establish me a kingdom. Would you notice Acts 2.29 with me on the screen? This is Peter preaching, and he says, Let me freely speak unto you of the patriarch David, that he is both dead and buried. How many Jews, upon hearing that, said, What? Did you know David had died? I didn't know that either. Well, that's breaking news. Friends, let me ask you, if the death of David was so well known to the audience, why bring it up? Because there was something about the death of David that's connected to a promise, a prophecy. In 2 Samuel 7, David, when you're dead and buried, one of your descendants is going to establish a kingdom and build me a house. And what does Acts 2 show us? That Davidic descendant, Jesus Christ, was establishing a kingdom and building a house on this day in Acts chapter 2. And that house is, it's the same as the church of our Lord Jesus Christ. After the 3,000 had been baptized and received the word with all a welcomeness of mind, look, they cried out about Jesus. What shall we do? And Peter, I want to note this in Acts chapter 2, when they said, what shall we do, Peter and the other apostles didn't say, well, just bow your heads and repeat this prayer after me. Lord Jesus, come into my heart. I make you the Lord of my life. No words like that are spoken in Acts 2. And if someone interrupted me in the middle of this sermon tonight and said, I believe Jesus Christ is the Son of God, and I can't wait another minute to find out what else I need to do, what do I need to do? Should I give them a different answer than the inspired answer given in Acts 2? Yes or no? No. Shouldn't I give them the same inspired revelation that came to the apostles and repeat that to them? Yes. Repent and be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ for the remission of sins. About 3,000 did so, and the Lord added them, the saved, to something, in fact, as those who were being added to the church daily were being added to the church, they were simultaneously saved. So here's the question. If you'd gone up to these people in Acts 2 and saw them smiling, dripping wet, and said, Hey, why are you so happy? My sins have been washed away, and I'm now a member of the church. Now, here's where you and I have to try to put on some first century sandals instead of our 20th century glasses. Go back to the first century and put yourself in their sandals and you've just been 
heard to say that you are now a member of the church and then suppose someone from our generation, our day and time, says, oh, you're a member of the church. Fantastic. Which denomination? I'm sorry, which what? Well, what, what denomination are you? You said you're a member of the church, but you didn't say which one. Can I ask you lovingly tonight, how many churches did the people on the day of Pentecost know about? And to whom did that church belong? It belonged to Christ. Was it the church of Jesus Christ? Yes. Was it a denomination known by that name? No. We just came back from a restoration tour with our students from the Memphis School of Preaching. And I told them more than once as we visited some of these sites, if Alexander Campbell and Barton W. Stone had never seen the light of day, I could still see the light of truth of how to become a Christian in the New Testament. I don't need them to become the beginners of my heritage. In fact, I'll tell you, I don't use that terminology. When I'm referring to the Lord's church and its heritage, its origins, its beginnings, I don't start in the early 1800s. I go back to the beginning in Acts 2 and I say those folks were members of the church that belonged to someone. To whom did it belong? Christ. So were they members of the church of Christ? Yes. Can I do the same thing they did? Yes. And if I do, what will I be? The same thing they were, members of the blood-bought church of Jesus Christ. That's what we still need to be preaching today. Someone says, but wait, isn't one church as good as another? I know you've heard this. One church is as good as another. Well, let's see about this. What is the church also known as? The house of God is the church of the living God. So, if one church is as good as another, and the church is the house, then one house is as good as another. But wait just a minute. What have we already... Is one house as good as another, by the way? When people go looking for a house in which to live, do they have the mentality that says, I don't care, one house is as good as another. One with a rotting foundation is just as good as one without one. No, we want to look at the houses and compare them and my friends, when it comes to the religious house in which I find my soul, I want to recognize that one house is not always as good as another. In fact, oftentimes it's not. Let me illustrate with three quick Old Testament examples. Was one house as good as another back in the days when Jesus Christ spoke those words about the house built on the sand and the house built on the rock? Before we get to those Old Testament examples, we already alluded to this. But now here's the Old Testament example. The world had gotten so corrupt that every imagination of the thought of man's heart was only evil continually. God had sent Enoch, the great grandfather of Noah, to preach a message to the ungodly, 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 ungodly. That's the word that's used four times in Jude 14 and 15 to describe the world... In Enoch's day, this is before Noah even came along. This is before Genesis 6-5. It was already going down that downward spiral. And it just got worse until we get to Genesis 6-5. And God says, Noah, I want you to make an ark of gopher wood. And I want you to make it this long and this broad and this high. Now here's where I want you to... I want you to consider something with me. If someone had come up to Noah 
and said, Noah, there's a rumor going around. We'd like for you to answer it. The rumor is, Noah, that you believe a flood is coming, and whether that's true or not, we don't know. You think it is. But here's what we want to know. The rumor is that when this flood you say is coming comes, the rumor is that you think only you and the people aboard that ark with you are going to be saved. Noah, is it true that you believe that only you and the people aboard that ark are going to be saved? Do you think you're the only ones who are going to be saved from the flood? Can I ask you something? If they had asked Noah that question, what would the right answer have been? Should Noah have said, well, that sounds very narrow to say that the only people who are going to be saved are those in one specific location. That sounds so narrow-minded. I don't want anything to do with that, so i tell you what. There might be other ways. Maybe you could say the, the flood prayer and ask God to lift you above the flood waters and maybe God could save you that way. Maybe you could do this. Maybe you could do that. Did Noah give any other location for salvation than the ark that God told him and his family to enter? In fact, I want you to go to 1 Peter chapter 3 and notice something in the New Testament that is stated about this ark. In 1 Peter chapter 3, notice that in verse number 20, the long-suffering of God waited in the days of Noah while the ark was a-preparing, and the next word is very significant, wherein, not out, wherein few, that is, eight souls, were saved by water. Now, friends, I'm just asking you a question. We live in a time when if you ever say it has to be this way and can be no other, you're considered a bigot, you're narrow-minded, you're arrogant, you're this, you're that. I want to ask you, what would have been the most arrogant answer Noah could have given? The most arrogant answer Noah could have given to the question, are you saying only you and the people aboard that ark are going to be saved? Is that what you're saying, Noah? The most arrogant answer he could have given would have been this one. You know, that does sound too narrow to me. That's what God said, but I think probably more than folks are in that ark will be saved. That would have been arrogant. Why? Because he would have been presuming to take upon himself more knowledge than God. That's the one place where salvation was located. So I'm asking you tonight in all love, was one house as good as another when the flood came in Noah's day? Yes or no? Was one house as good as another when the flood came in the days of Noah? Yes or no? The house that God had designated for salvation was the one house in which someone needed to be in order to be saved from the flood. Second, in the tenth plague... Was one house as good as another during the tenth plague? Do you remember Moses and Aaron have been told by God exactly what the children of Israel must do to be spared from this tenth plague? And it's very specific. It's very easy to understand. And you can read about it in Exodus 12. Verse 3. Speak to all the congregation of Israel. This applies to everyone. In the tenth day, stop, does it have to be the tenth day? 
Well, if God said tenth day, what does that mean? It doesn't mean the ninth. It doesn't mean the eleventh. It means the tenth. The tenth of this month. God didn't have to say, I don't mean the 11th, 12th, 13th, 14th. When he specified the day he wanted, all the other days were what? Automatically ruled out as authority, as authorized. And so look at the Exodus 12 and notice, in the 10th day of this month, does it have to be this month? Well, God says, yeah, this month. They shall take every man a lamb. Well, isn't one lamb as good as another? Look at verse 5. Your lamb shall be without blemish. You mean a blemished lamb is not as good as an unblemished one? No, it's not as good. And a male, is one gender as good as another for this particular sacrifice? No, it needs to be a male. Is one age as good as another? Of the first year. And you're permitted to take it either from the sheep or the goats. Doesn't matter. Keep it till the 14th day of the same month. What if someone said, I'm not waiting for the 14th day. I'm so anxious to do what God says. I'm going to do it on the 12th. Well, wait a minute. If you're anxious to do what God says, you'll do it on the 14th because that's when God said to do it. And if someone else came along and said, I'm very busy. It'll probably be the 17th before I can even get to all this stuff we're being told to do. That wouldn't have worked either. The 14th day was binding. And any day that wasn't the 14th day was not permitted. Of the same month, binding. Yes, the month was binding. And look at it, if you will, please. The whole assembly of the congregation shall kill it in the evening. The time to kill it was binding at least within the parameters of making sure it fell into that which was known as evening. And then verse 7. They shall take of the blood, and where to put the blood was binding. Strike it on the two side posts, and on the upper doorpost of the houses, wherein they shall eat the Passover. And when I see the blood, I'll pass over you. Moses, Aaron, come here please, come here. Are you saying... The only way our firstborn can live, or the, that we as firstborn can live, is to take a male lamb of the first year without blemish on the tenth day and to keep it until the fourteenth day of this same month and to kill it in the evening and to strike its blood on the two side posts and on the upper doorpost of the house wherein we eat the Passover. Are you saying that's the only way we can be saved from this plague? What would the right answer have been? We're saying it's the only God-revealed way. Who are we to change it? If God said this is the way, who are we to change it? How many plans of salvation did God reveal through Moses and Aaron for this tenth plague? So I want to ask you something right now. Has God ever confined salvation to one location? Has he ever done that, yes or no? Has he ever said salvation is in one place? Noah's Ark. Has he ever said the way to be saved from something is one plan? Exodus 12. And those aren't the only two examples. One final example from the Old Testament and then some final New Testament applications. Was one house as good as another during the battle of Jericho? Rahab, do you want to live? Yes. All right, here's what you do. Joshua chapter 2 is explicit in this de department. Verse 18 of Joshua chapter 2, you'll notice when we come into the land, bind this line of scarlet cord 
in the window you let us down by. Now, wait a minute. That already seems pretty specific. It needs to be this cord, this color, this window. Is God really persnickety about details? There are times when he absolutely is. And you'll notice this is one of those times. It needs to be same cord, same color, same window. And you bring your father, your mother, your brothers, your father's household all home to you. And if they ever leave your house, they're on their own. Now, Rahab, what makes you think your house is better than ours? Why do we have to come to your place? I don't think my house is better than yours. The only reason I'm telling you, my kinfolk, about the need to come to my house is God chose that location as the place where anyone that is in the house where the scarlet cord is hanging from the same window I let the spies down by, anyone in that house is going to be saved. I'm inviting you to the safe place God has designated. I didn't choose it. I'm just honoring God's will through his spokesman. Friends, I want to ask you a question. Was one house as good as another when the battle of Jericho came? A house that wasn't Rahab's house wasn't as safe, guaranteed safe, as the house that was hers. In fact, in Joshua chapter 6, here's what happened. Verse 22 beginning. Joshua chapter 6 and verse number 22. Joshua said to the two men that had spied out the country, Go into the harlot's house. Bring out from there the woman and all that she has, just like you promised her. Now Hollywood, as the two men were about to open the door and Rahab was coming out, would cut to a commercial before we got to see the rest of the folks. To keep us in suspense, did her family come or not? We don't have to wait for a commercial break to end. We can read it right now. The young men that were spies went in, verse 23. Here comes Rahab. Here comes her father, her mother, her brethren, all that she had. And they brought out all her kindred and left them outside the camp of Israel and then burnt the city with fire. And verse 25, Joshua saved Rahab the harlot alive and her father's household and all that she had. Was one house as good as another for those other residents of Jericho? No. That brings me to the conclusion of this message. And I want to say this as lovingly as I know how and as informationally as I know how. How many of you have ever been asked the question, is it true that you believe that only members of the church of Christ are going to be saved? Have you ever been asked that question? How did you answer? There are two extremes we need to avoid One is to just give a quick yes or no answer as if to say, how could you not know that? And if you don't like it, tough. The other is to do what one lady did to me when she came up to me, the church where I was preaching locally, and she said, a friend of mine asked me that question, and I told my friend that was just a big, ugly rumor someone started about us. It wasn't true at all. I said, please tell me that's not how you left that conversation. There's a way to answer that question without you having to say anything ugly or offensive. People still may not like it, but I'll tell you what I found over the years. The three scriptures I'm going to close this message with, all from the same book, studied by someone with a receptive heart and soil, 
has often led to the baptism of that person and a membership in the one church you read about in the New Testament. And that's one thing I want to say very clearly to you. In April 25, 26 years ago now, I was studying with this couple at our house, actually at their house, come to think of it. And uh, there at their house, I was in Acts 2 where we started earlier. And I said, you know, these folks were members of the church Not a denomination known as the Church of Christ, but just the actual church that Christ built. And I was moving on, and the woman said, whoa, 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 go back, go back. If I just heard you correctly, in trying to get me and my husband to become members of the Church of Christ, you're not asking us to join the Church of Christ denomination because it's the best denomination of them all, and you're the best denomination out there. If I'm hearing you right, when you say Church of Christ, you mean this Church of Christ that started in Acts 2? That's the Church of Christ you're trying to get me and my husband to become members of? The one we read about in Acts 2? That's the one? What would you have said to her? I said, yes, ma'am. That's the only church of the Lord Jesus Christ I want anything to do with is the one that started on Pentecost. She said, shall we go to the pond? They had a pond on their property. It was early April and it was cold. I said, we can go to the pond or we can go to the heated baptistry down the road. You choose. We went to the heated baptistry. I baptized she, her that night. I baptized her husband that night. And when I was filling out a little baptismal certificate to commemorate the occasion, I said, if someone asked you tomorrow, what would you do last night, what would you tell them? They said, we'd tell them that we were saved last night. And I said, what if they said, oh, that's great, which denomination? I love their answer, and I love the tone with which they gave this answer, too. Sometimes people think you're either gruff with this answer, or you don't give this answer because you don't want to be perceived as gruff. But they learned how to blend the two, compassion and conviction. They said if somebody asked us which denomination, we'd say, we found out last night we could be saved by the blood of Christ and added to the church that belongs to Christ without having to join any denomination. And isn't that still true tonight, my friends? It's still true tonight. And I'll tell you, this is what I'm about to do now very briefly. It doesn't take long to do. But I've used it, I've drawn it on a napkin in the restaurant, I've drawn it on scrap pieces of paper, I've used it on my iPad with these slides which my wife helped develop for me. They're simple but they just get the point across. Does one have to be a member of the church of Christ, the undenominational, pre-denominational, actual church of Christ that was started in Acts 2, does one have to be a member of the church that belongs to Christ to be saved? And here's what I always say when I'm asked that. You have asked such an important question, I wouldn't dare just give you a yes or no answer without showing you the three... Do you have time for me to show you three verses of Scripture and let the Bible answer you instead of me? And most folks will take the time and look at three simple verses. And so we turn to Ephesians and I show them this one first. For the husband is the head of the wife, even as Christ is the head of the church, and he is the Savior of something. He is the Savior of 
Of what is he the Savior? The body, they answer. And I show them this body of Christ circle and this man who's outside of the body of Christ. And then I ask them this question. According to Ephesians 5.23, not B.J., not some catechism written by men. No, the inspired Word of God. According to Ephesians 5.23, if Jesus is the Savior of the body, does this man need to be in the body of Christ to be in that which Jesus is the Savior of? And guess what the answer is every time? Yes. All right, second verse. Ephesians 4.4, 4, there is one body and one spirit even as you're called and one hope of your calling. Someone says, I'm offended by the singularity of that. Well, there was only one ark and that was just the reality of the situation. There was only one plan of salvation for the 10th plague. So one is not always an ugly word. It's sometimes the God-given word and that is there's one body. So can this man just go out and join any religious body or does he need to be in the body connected to the head, Jesus Christ? And so here at this point, I go to the last verse and I always, before reading it, I always ask this question. Based on these two verses, is Jesus the Savior of something and what is it? Yes, he's the Savior of the body. And how many does the Bible say there are that are authorized by God? There's one. So does this man need to be a member of the one body that is connected to Christ to be in that which Jesus is the Savior of? Yes. And then we read Ephesians 1, 22 and 23. And gave him to be the head over all things to the church, which is something... What does the inspired Word of God say the church is? His body. And so I always ask them this in my Bible study. If I take that word body and I replace it with the word church, do I have scriptural justification for doing that? Look at the verse above it. What does that verse say the church is? His body. And so I have scriptural justification for calling the body of Christ the church because that's what Paul says the church is. It's his body and it's connected to the head, Jesus Christ. And so if this man must be a member of the one body connected to Christ and the body is the church, then does this man have to be a member of the one church called out group that belongs to Christ to be among the saved? What's the answer to that question? Based on these three verses of Scripture, this man needs to enter the body. He needs to enter the church. And it may be that someone listening to me tonight is outside of the realm of safety. You're not in the body. You've never been baptized into the body as 1 Corinthians 12, 13 says you must be. It would be a thrill for us tonight to see someone who's never obeyed the gospel come forward, hear, believe, repent, confess, and be baptized into that one body, and they would be a member of no denomination at all. They'd just be a member of the blood-bought church of Jesus Christ, and they could go forth from this place 
singing and rejoicing as they go. Friends, maybe you've been in the body, but you have departed from the safety of, of you know, what you had with Christ by your willful prodigal behavior. You need to get back in the place of safety. Enter back into the place of safety. Remember, Rahab's family was told, if your family leaves the house, their blood's on their own head. They need to stay in the house. Get in the house of God, the church that belongs to Christ. It's built on a solid foundation. And stay there. If you're here tonight and you're not in this blood-bought church of Jesus Christ, you could leave tonight a member of the church you read about in the New Testament. And by the way, just a few days ago, I got an email or a text message actually from that couple I baptized. And their son had preached his first sermon and they sent me a copy of it, and he mentioned his parents' conversion in there and encouraged the crowd not to be too shy to tell someone they know about the simplicity of the plan of salvation and the church of our Lord. Would you tonight become a member of the blood-bought church of Jesus Christ? We'd love for you to do so. If you need to study more, we'll be glad to study with you. If you already know what to do, you just haven't done it, Do it tonight without delay. If you've wandered, come back. We love you. We're about to sing to encourage you. Won't you respond to the Christ who bled for you and enter his church as together we stand and sing? Won't you please?